Just a heads up that this podcast contains themes of family violence, which may be triggering. If you're listening in Tasmania where this podcast is made and you need support now, you can contact the free Family Violence Counselling and Support Service on 1800 608 122 or you can call the 24-hour National Support Service on 1800 RESPECT. If you're in an emergency, please contact triple zero. This podcast also contains some legal information which is not intended to be legal advice. You will find a list of legal services that you can contact for individual advice in the show notes. Because my ex-partner had so much control over me, you know, I couldn't peel potatoes the right way, I couldn't cut them the right way, I couldn't cook. He used to call me names and tell me how useless and hopeless and you'll stuff that up and this is not right. And that, When that's told to you continually for 10 years, constant, 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 you have no self-esteem. I had reached the point where I'd go to him and say, I've just finished the washing up. What is it you want me to do now? Because I didn't know what it was I had to do because I would get into trouble if I, say, for example, I went to get the vacuum cleaner out. Turn the bloody vacuum cleaner off, I'm trying to have a sleep. Or whatever you did was wrong. So you had to ask for permission for everything. Is that what you pictured as family violence? It's pretty full-on to hear a woman whose voice we've had to change describe in detail the control and emotional abuse that she experienced from her partner. We don't hear it very often because, well, because of heaps of reasons. And what I'm starting to wonder is because we don't hear it, perhaps we don't really know what family violence is, how to recognise it and how to help. And that means we become bystanders. Hey, it's Penny Terry here, and yeah, it's a pretty crap feeling to think of ourselves as bystanders to family violence, but of course we are. Many people still think about the physical violence, and most of us don't really understand the many different ways women experience coercive control and emotional abuse. We're going to make a start on that in this episode, and you'll hear women explain what it was like for them, and you'll hear from lawyers and counsellors who hear these stories every day, and from men who've made big changes in their own behaviour and started to see things differently. There's a story that someone I know as Dave told me recently that I realised I was unpacking while he was still talking. I remember being at a nightclub once with a a girlfriend. We were dancing, drinking, hanging out and somebody had come over and tried to kiss her on the dance floor or something uh and you know and she'd said oh no like sorry I've got a got a boyfriend or something and he'd like um just just kind of gone oh oh, and just walked away and then like come over to me and said oh hey sorry um I didn't realize she was yours and I was like oh that's really fucked up (laughs) like I'd never and yet that was the first time I'd sort of really like you know I'd heard people talk about um, misogynistic attitudes before and just thought it was all a bit you know like just silly and then and then that happened I was like oh man that guy actually like just straight up 
didn't didn't apologize to her at all apologized to me you know didn't touch me didn't do anything to me but um yeah because his perception of her was that she belonged to me and I was like that's horrendous now when Dave was telling me that story about halfway through I was thinking oh he's done a good thing in apologizing and then Dave got to that line of I didn't realize she was yours And I was like, oh, right. So let's leave the dance floor there and let's hear how women explain emotional abuse and coercive control to their lawyers. As you know, we're making this podcast with the Women's Legal Service Tasmania, which, by the way, have a heap of useful fact sheets on their website about family violence that you can check out now or download. We've put a link in our show notes. They have two specialised family violence units and the lawyers who work there spend hours speaking with women about what they've experienced. I spent some time with Principal Solicitor Elise Whitmore and CEO Yvette Seatel to hear what they hear. People don't want to be in relationships where they're made to feel like this. So it obviously doesn't start out um, with a new relationship and someone telling you that you're unlovable. It starts out in very small ways. Um, It starts out by... Uh, maybe slowly making comments about how your friends aren't really very good for you or um, they don't really get along with your parents or they start to limit your participation in work or uh, seeing friends. Um, It starts out as well um, by being overly affectionate, overly loving. There's a concept called love bombing where they will, a perpetrator will want to take up monopolize all your time all your emotions will want to be with you all the time and that is a way for them to become the most important person to you um, and for them to be the only priority that you have and it's a it's a way that they can later control you. Is there a particular situation perhaps a case that you've dealt with where you can explain what the coercion and the control looked like? There are so many different ways that this can present, Penny, that it's really difficult to say that there is a typical way that someone will be emotionally abused. One that comes to mind um, that made contact with me during COVID hadn't realised that she had been in an emotionally abusive relationship for such a long time. Um, It wasn't until she was literally stuck in the house with her perpetrator that she realised how bad it was and she described it as walking on eggshells, not knowing what the rules were when they were going to change but knowing that she had to abide by them. It was um, being verbally abused, it was not having um, the control in her life to reach out to family members or friends when she wanted to. When you say the rules... What, what type of rules? So the rules about when dinner should be on the table and what it should be, about when she is allowed to go and do the grocery shopping and how long she can take, about how she answers the phone, about who she can talk to and when, um, about how she folds laundry or what she spends money on. Um, there are so many ways, big and small, um, that perpetrators will use to control the life and the mind of another person. 
And another recent example is being told before you go out to a function how to dress and that being controlled. Uh, so wearing something quite fishing and high heels and doing your makeup in a particular way and your hair and then being criticised when you get home um, for looking too slushy. Now I'm just going to butt in here because that example that Yvette just gave is almost a carbon copy of one of the ways that Deborah Thompson, who we met in episode one, found herself controlled and confused. This control would um, very quickly lead to me having to wear what he told me to wear. He preferred women to dress very provocatively, high heels, stockings, mini uh, short dresses, plunging necklines to full gamut and I'd wear them because I was afraid of the consequences um, and then when we go out at night obviously I'd um, receive stares from other males and he'd abuse me he'd drag me home saying I'm never taking you out again you're a, excuse the language a slut a flirt as if it was my fault and my intention. Or he'd, um, he'd, he'd say to me, I heard that you had um, got a lift down the street with a friend of mine, which I did one day. Um, a friend of his picked me up, took me down the street where I went shopping. It was just a completely innocent <laughs> lift downtown. And uh, when when I got back, he said to me, I heard that you were in the car with my friend. He accused me of, um, again, being a, a whore and, and um, things would be completely bro- um, blown out of proportion or even made up. All of this just created invisible chains and fear that pervaded all elements of my life. I ended up without human rights. I had no liberty and uh, it also reduced my ability for action um, because I, I became so confused and believed what he told me every day that it was my fault and my responsibility to change. So, in effect, I ended up being hostage in the world created by him. We'll hear more of Deb's story as this season continues, and it's not going to get any easier. And there are so many words that we could talk about from that. The one I'm going to point to now is responsibility. Because we sort of think that someone's doing something about this, aren't they? As we release this podcast, Tasmania is the only Australian jurisdiction to have introduced offences that directly criminalise coercive and controlling behaviours. But, rather than using the words coercive control, it's referred to as emotional and economic abuse. So the legal system is doing something about it, but it also isn't. I'll leave it up to lawyers Elise and Yvette to explain. When we're looking at it from a legal point of view, we are looking at 
a course of conduct where someone unreasonably controls or intimidates their partner and that has the effect of causing mental harm or apprehension or fear. So it's anything from comments that are made repeatedly about the fact that no one will ever love you or that someone's a really bad mother through to things like undermining someone's experience of the world or their memory of events and that's something that we call gaslighting to social isolation, so making sure that um, someone doesn't have support networks, doesn't have contact with their family or friends, doesn't have the ability to reach out for help. So it might also be swearing at somebody, it's wearing someone down with constant criticism, it might be um, making someone think that they're going crazy, refashioning what they're saying or re-describing it and saying, oh, but you said that yesterday and you're saying this today and making them start to question their own uh, mental health. If we get to having to prove this, because uh, as, as you mentioned, Elise, you have women come to you who don't realise that this has been happening. How, how do people get prosecuted for emotional abuse and coercive control? With very lengthy documents setting out the course of conduct that has happened over the years, and it, it usually is years by the time we get to this point, um, and, and fully particularising um, the events that on their own might not be an offence under the Family Violence Act. So for Yvette's example, um, asking someone to wear a particular dress or wear a particular style of makeup might not be a family violence offence. But that in connection with other forms of control within that relationship and extending over a period of time and a, and a course of conduct, um, detailing those and how they all fit together is integral when we're looking at prosecuting these types of offences. Is it easy to prosecute? Unfortunately, it's not. Um, there are very low numbers for prosecution in Tasmania. Um, but we do at least have the offence of emotional abuse in our legislation, unlike some other states. Why is it tricky then to get prosecutions? I think that there is a reluctance within the profession um, with police, with lawyers, with systems to identify this um, as a problem, to ask about it when people present to see their lawyer, to make a report to police. And it's been a lack of understanding about how to proceed with these prosecutions because you're right, they are really difficult to establish. So what we're really looking for, Penny, if we were going to summarise this, is a pattern of behaviour that's abusive uh, and when you link it all together, it tells a story about the relationship. And so the challenge for us as lawyers um, and for police is to gather that evidence as part of responding to any family violence offence and to ask the right questions. Yep, this is where we get into the systemic problems. It's what researcher and counsellor Torna Pittman has been talking about since 2005 when she did her PhD, that even though economic and emotional abuse are now criminalised under the Family Violence Act in Tasmania, the system struggles to use them effectively because it's set up to deal with single incidents and not so good with patterns of behaviour. To put it simply, our systems are used to dealing with the when and where details not the how. 
Here are some numbers so you can work out for yourself if the emotional and economic abuse provisions are effective. They were introduced in Tasmania in 2004, but it took three years before any charges were laid. Over the next 15 years, there were 198 charges laid. If we compare that to other charges laid under the Family Violence Act, most related to single incidents, in one year, between 2015 and 2016, there were more than 3,000 incidents of family violence that resulted in charges. So that's 3,000 charges in one year compared to 198 charges over 15 years. Now, for Torna Pittman, she thinks it's numbers like this that show change is needed, and she's working hard on that. But she also thinks there are some perhaps quicker things that could happen tomorrow. I think it would be truly wonderful if the legal system could say, look, we can't prove that beyond reasonable doubt, but nonetheless, we think your behaviour is reprehensible. Because often the woman is in the same room with the male when there's a judge presiding. And so many women have said to me that they felt like the judge colluded with the male and rather than say, mate, what you've done is not okay. Can't charge you for all of it, but it wasn't okay. And the legal system is actually, I think, really responsible to not be inactive bystanders and allowing this kind of extraordinary and acute inequality to continue because they cannot prove beyond reasonable a doubt whether an incident happened. How do you think the legal profession might might react to that comment? They might find that quite tricky and I'm, I wouldn't be talking about anyone in particular in the legal system. It's just that as a whole, you know, they they can be seen to be behaving like an inactive bystander and it might be because of they don't know what else to do. It would take an enormous shift to change that culture. It would take really coming to terms with the fact that coercive control is endemic. Are you optimistic? Look, I am. I think there are really, really clever people in the legal profession, really outstanding thinkers and leaders, and that eventually their voices will rise to the top. And they will perhaps follow the lead of the UK um, in criminalising coercive control and look at how they've done it. And to learn from that, rather than bringing up all kinds of reasons and excuses why it might not work in Australia. What are those reasons? Well, for example, that it might, you know, put women in more risky positions and it might be used against them. Well, that's valid. I can understand someone thinking that and saying that and they have a lot of legal knowledge and understanding to even comment on that. But That can only happen if the legal system isn't equipped to deal with that and a little bit more astute and and have better and more precise tools than letting that happen. And that's not hard to counter. It's just having the knowledge and the actual insight and maybe employing coercive control experts within the legal system to really help change that culture over and it might take a quite, a, quite a while, but that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't be holding up excuses as the reason we don't. Torna went on to tell me that while Tasmania does deserve credit for introducing these laws, she thinks they need to be improved and that more needs to be done to support the system 
and the public to use them. She thinks that at the moment they don't make use of the extensive research and knowledge that's created the term coercive control, which she says better represents the course of conduct that's at the core of family violence than emotional abuse is able to do. So there's some of the big picture stuff. Let's bring it back now to the day-to-day. One of the things that I pulled out from what Torna and the lawyers have been saying is that people within the systems need to ask the right questions. And so do all of us. So let's find out what to look for and how to ask from lawyers Elise and Yvette, who ask these questions all the time. So social withdrawal is a really big sign. So someone might be in a relationship um, that's new and they're starting to limit their contact with friends and family. Well, the person might be really outgoing um, and really vivacious and quite out there and extroverted and then all of a sudden you don't see them at anything. And it's about checking in with that person, asking them if they're okay, perhaps when, you know, when he's not around. How do we ask those questions? And again, maybe this isn't the right question for lawyers, I don't know, but in your experience, um, how do we have those really tricky conversations? Look, I think as women, we talk about a whole heap of stuff um, that's uncomfortable. We talk about a lot of private things and we have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable in these relationships and confront it with our friends in a gentle way. And that'll look different based on the personalities of, of the friends. So for me, I'm quite an out there kind of person. So I'd just say, oh, you know, I wouldn't do it in front of the other person. I would wait until afterwards and then say, you know, are you okay? I noticed, you know, your reaction was this or that you're not coming to a whole heap of things. Is everything all right? Um, And also just making the space to be able to listen to somebody and trying not to judge it, but to let them know that you're there and you're um, happy to have the conversation, even though you know that it might be uncomfortable. Just thinking about the practicalities in a social situation, if if your friend, if you think that you know, she's going out with a bloke who's not that great. You don't really like him. It'd be very easy to just stop inviting him around. And I imagine that doesn't that doesn't help. That's often how this presents, Penny. So you can think, I just can't deal with them. I haven't got enough energy. Um, That person's toxic. But then by cutting them out, that might cut her out and then you're feeding into the whole plan for him to further socially isolate her. Are there other things we can do to intervene? Are there any situations you've heard of that helped um, a woman recognise that she was in one of these situations? I think reassuring someone that this isn't in their head and giving them a sense of confidence that they can trust their own memories, they can trust their own experiences, they can trust um, how they are feeling about something when they might have been told for a really long time leading into that that they couldn't. And also being open to hearing from somebody, you know, look, now's not a good time to come and visit me, even if you've planned something special with your friend uh, and it's been months in the making and then they withdraw at the last minute. That might be something that's outside of their their control. And to being understanding about that, even though we all get a bit mad when people let us down, but being open to the possibility that something might have happened that's beyond their control. Uh, And also, if you've given someone a lot of messages and you haven't heard back from them, how do you know that they've got those messages? I'm not quite sure what my question is here, but it's 
even if you have this conversation with a friend, um, with your daughter, with your mother, and you're hoping to not be a bystander, and yet they still don't recognise it, what can you then do? Wait. So um, it doesn't have to be something that you have drilled into someone and that you are trying to get them to take a particular position or agree with you. They might not be ready to come to that on their own. Um, It's about making sure that they are aware, they have information. Um, You can revisit the conversation at a later time. You can um, invite them to contact other services, but it might be something that you can't um, coerce or control them into a situation that you want them to be in when you're trying to bring to light that that is what's happening to them in another aspect of their life. It's really complicated. Yes, Mm. it is. We've focused very heavily on what we can do or what we might notice in the woman who is experiencing this. What kinds of things could we be looking out for in a perpetrator, things that they might say or things that they might do and how we can perhaps pull them them up? So... Making comments to humiliate a partner in public is one of the elements of emotional abuse. So not giving permission for someone to do that, so not responding, not laughing at jokes that are made at their partner's expense, um, not um, giving your approval for sexist comments that might be made generally. And that might be as much as rolling your eyes. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to say something because sometimes people think they're weak if they don't say something at the time. But there's a whole range of other ways that you can support somebody in that situation. It might be to roll your eyes or just to say, here we go again, or something that just shows that you actually don't approve of what the person said. And another thing that we can do, Penny, that we often don't think of is we can change the conversation, you know. So that's another way to respond is to move it onto another track and have a completely different conversation about a completely different thing. And people get the message pretty quickly. Has someone got the message when you've tried one of these things? Now, you'll remember from episode one, we heard that Dave lost friends from calling out these sorts of comments. And we also met social worker and counsellor Brad Beitzel, who works with men who have been abusive. And his take is that it's almost impossible as a man not to behave in harmful ways due to Australia's culture around manhood. But he says that's no excuse for the abuse. Brad knows these conversations can be tough. I'm in my uh, 60s, dare I say, and I try not to at the uh, at the family dining room when we get together, try and talk too much about it. But one of the indicators there, and also with my friends, my male friends, is that I can tell that they represent a lot of uh, the attitudes of men in that, oh, that, that's, and I get a lot of plaudits, um, Penny, for, you know, uh, you're a great guy, Brad, for doing all this. Well, that's pleasant, but I'm, um, I'd like you to be more about well, what can I do to change. I don't think they want to look at their own manhood, their own ways of their behaving, in that they too at times have done things which they'd be ashamed of, and so hence they they avoid it. So yeah, it it is it's awkward for men to to start to want to acknowledge that 
the issue, I think, when it comes to intimate partner violence is a man's issue. The statistics are overwhelming about that. Um, and it comes back to our privilege as men. As I said, we one of the problems we have is that we, we, we are seen as the first-class citizens still to this day and often in, the, not always in families, but you've got to be the number one. You're, you're the man of the house and those sorts of messages. Those were the messages given to me by my father. And um, it is complex for us men because it can then lead us down to this um, cycle of uh, self-loathing and then doesn't excuse it taking it out on others, but uh, that might, might explain it. So it's, it isn't easy. And just like I've suggested to women, there are those telephone supports such as 1-800-RESPECT. Um, in Tasmania, there's the uh, Family Violence Counselling Service. Men can ring them too, or they could ring men's line and start to explore some of the behaviours and take those necessary steps to stop the, what you think are throwaway lines that are incredibly hurtful. It's okay if the steak is cooked at four minutes and 30. It's all right. Stop putting so much pressure on your partner and open up some um, extra areas for kindness and love and it's just so rewarding it's so it's it's a whole new way of living it is it is um it is in in some ways it is like giving up smoking and your lungs start to breathe and with uh, lots of forgiveness i sound like a, an episode of oprah here penny but um <laughs> it's just so much easier taking that weight of that burden of having to be the winner the number one and just being yourself Brad, would you have described yourself as abusive before you changed? Yes, yes, I say that to people regularly. Um, made, uh, say, sexist comments. Didn't uh, treat my uh, my partners with respect. They would often turn up late. I think it's step three or four where I did give this from a twelve step program. If appropriate, and you're not going to do any more damage, you go to the people who you have harmed through your behaviours and you apologise. So I've gone back to some of my partners and uh, have acknowledged that um, I wasn't proud of some of the things I did. I was very pleased that they didn't view it like I had. I must say, talking to you now, Penny, I was ashamed of it, and that certainly is a motivator, shame, but I want to use that energy of shame, using it for better, and I think I've done that. So um, it's sort of time now to uh, to encourage other men to to go on the journey. For people to even listen to this podcast, I think men must think that they are allies of women. Um, yet probably some of them have still gone, oh, come on, that's not a problem. Stop being so precious. Yeah. Whether we're ringing the family violence hotline to get support or whether we're just checking our own behaviour, how? what would you suggest to them just about the, the, the not being so precious or that's not a problem or she needs to get over it? Um, how, how do we make that switch? Yeah. So it takes me back when I was about 35 and it was the 1990s and I was working for News Limited, News Corp, and they decided to do some uh, anti-bullying training at the workplace. And they wheeled out a video and it was hard to watch because I thought, yep, I've done that. Yep, I've done that. Yep, I've done that. But the big takeaway for me, Penny, on that video was, uh, at the time, 
I was in Melbourne, there was an issue in the workplace of a man had a um, like a, a small penis doll on his desk, which was for him was funny, but others found it offensive. And he argued, not not at my workplace. This is a story we've covered. He'd argued, well, I don't find it offensive. The person next to me doesn't find it offensive. We think it's funny. But the key then at News Limited, which reflected a new way of looking at things, is how does the recipient find that? The person who's got to go past your desk finds that. So that goes to, oh, it's just a flippant comment, just get over it. Well, that does not respect how the person who's received that comment, how they're feeling about it. And certainly that was the area where I felt some shame is that what I thought was funny was actually hurtful to others. So I say to those people say, oh, just build a bridge, drink some concrete milkshakes, take some concrete pills. Um, I say to them, you're the one who has to start to realise that your behaviours, as as slight as they might seem, need to be examined because they're hurtful. Not on. We're going to do something now that might be a little bit like that video that Brad watched. We're going to go back to Torna Pittman, researcher and counsellor with Engender Equality, and hear some words that her clients have shared with her because I'm trying to work out what the difference is between being a bit off in a moment and being abusive. You ready? When you get treated to a diet of words that put you down, like you're too sensitive, you're not smart enough, you don't know because you're not mature enough, the way you were brought up has made you quite difficult or, you know, your personality is problematic, You're, you're too... Um, choosy or you're too or you procrastinate too much or you you do um, you don't cook well things like that add up over time there'll so. be people listening who might recognize some of those phrases either they've said it themselves they've heard someone else say it mm. to their partner how do we work out when sometimes what might be a throwaway line becomes becomes abusive yeah. and can start to impact who we are I think the like we can all be a little bit off base at times. It's part of the human condition is that we can all say and do things that we we really shouldn't. It's the pattern of it and the having no right of reply, not being able to discuss something that did go wrong, which in an equal relationship you might inadvertently be a bit off one day. You might call someone a, a name. You might act inappropriately. And if that other person is too scared or hangs back or is too hesitant to raise it with you because they don't think they're going to get good hearing in the conversation, you're not going to respond well and you're not going to listen and you're not going to um, help her with her how she felt wounded, then you're starting to get that coercive control pattern. Familiar? We're nearly done. I just had one last question for Deb. What do you think might have happened 
And I know this is the what if step, but how do you think your life might have been different if someone had stepped in and taken some bystander action? Completely different. Um, if I was too afraid. And this is another wall that people have to jump over. The um, person they're talking to might be too afraid to come forward or they're worried about their children or worried about their financial situation. There's so many hurdles. And and this is why I suggest if a friend approaches um, a victim and says, I'm really worried about you, I would have liked someone to follow up on that and say, look, I'm really worried about you. But also then saying, would you mind if I talk to a social service on your behalf? If you can't do it yourself, you're too fearful. I would have loved someone to have said that to me. Now, I don't know what you'll remember from this episode or what you'll do with that. What I do know is that you're still listening, which is awesome because I know it can be hard going. And I hope you'll keep listening because the details we'll get over our next episodes are about the other different types of abuse. Yes, there are more. And how you're likely to witness the signs of family violence in your day to day. Maybe your job is one where you're likely to see some of the other types of abuse often. Our next episode looks at financial abuse. Well, I suppose they're trying to organise their affairs, their partner's affairs or their mother or father's affairs. And sometimes you see them overstepping the mark and you wonder why. What do you look at this kind of behaviour like? What word do you give it, Jeff? Well, I tend to think it's it's a sort of an, an, an abusive situation. It's not a physical or violent that I ever see, but it's a sort of manipulation or control, abusing the trust that the person should otherwise have in them um, and just taking advantage of them. That's next time on Rule of Thumb. Please check out our show notes and use the support services that are listed. We know this could bring up all sorts of stuff and you'll find plenty of options for individual legal advice there as well. My name is Penny Terry and this is a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. This podcast is funded by the Tasmanian Government's Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.